Christ my Savior and my God. With Christ my Savior and my God. With Christ my Savior and my God. Amen. We've been singing about the promise that our lives now belong to God in Christ because they've been purchased by Him. That promise is also a promise that invites us to come to Him and claim the reward that Jesus has won for us. That reward is access to the greatest power that's ever been known by anyone, anywhere. The power that hung the stars in place and that even now holds each of us in existence. That's a power that's at our disposal, that's offered to us. It's a power that God loves to show to be glorious on behalf of us. So let's go to him now and claim that power, taking our request to him. Would you pray with me? Your word promises us, Father, that we are loved by a love that's unmatched by any human love, a love that is holy, that is, that is fundamentally not normal, a love that has come to us when we have run away from you, a love that's based not on any quality in us, but a quality given to us through Jesus. Living from that love, from a confidence in it and a dependence upon it, Would you protect us and free us from any sense of abandonment or isolation? From the loneliness that comes natural? From the despair that lies to us and tells us that things will never be different than what they are? In the promise that Jesus stands for us, Would you protect us from the guilt that clouds our vision, that steals our joy? Claiming the promise that Jesus is alive even though he was dead. Would you set us free from the fear that comes natural to us? A fear of things that we can't control. A fear of things that could be done to us. A fear ultimately of death itself which comes for us and which we can't avoid. In the power of Jesus' resurrection, would you help us to live as those who are radically holy, who are not normal, because we don't fear death, but we cling to the Lord who has triumphed over the grave. We ask that you would help us, in other words, to enjoy the spoils of the victory that Jesus has won for us. We want them. Would you give them to us by your spirit? Would you change us by your power? This morning, we especially want to lift up members of our church who are scattered all over the world, taken there because of their love for and confidence in the gospel. I want to pray for Jacob Wetzel right now as he is in Africa and approaching a meeting tomorrow that will determine whether or not he can bring home his adopted son. We pray for whatever officials he's got to meet with, that they would look on him with favor. We pray for Enum, that you would continue to grow him healthy. We pray for Jacob and for Katie, who's still here, that you would protect them from fear that you would help them to trust in you, that you would, by your spirit, give them a supernatural level of trust in you as they look to tomorrow and to everything that will fall out from tomorrow. We want to see this precious child brought home. We know you have that power. You have already revealed yourself as the God of the widow and the orphan, as the one who takes to himself the weak and despised of this world. We know that you love Enum better than Jacob and Katie, or any of us. And it's claiming the promise of that love that we ask that you would 
that you would deliver him from his circumstances into the arms of his father and that you would do that tomorrow. We pray also for Ruthie Janikin, who's in the Philippines. She's a single woman in a foreign place doing uncomfortable and even potentially dangerous things for the gospel. We pray that you would keep her from fear, that you would protect her body and protect her spirit, that you would give her efforts in the gospel fruit. We want to see people believe in Jesus who'd never even heard of him before they met Ruthie. That's what we want to, that's what we want to see. We know you can do it. You've done it before. So would you give her great fruit in her work and protect her and bring her back to us safely? We pray the same thing for Janine Davis as she prepares to move to Indonesia. As she's moving, I, I believe, even in the next week or two, I pray that you would help her to trust you with all the logistics that come in with that, that you would protect her from culture shock, from disillusionment and discouragement, that you would help her to learn the language quickly, that you would help her to connect with locals who don't know Jesus quickly, that they would see in her a love that isn't normal, a holiness that draws them in and wins them over to Jesus. Would you give her fruit in her work, we pray. And now, as we turn to your word, a word that is separated from us by thousands of years and untold distance of culture, we ask that you would speak to us through it nonetheless. We know that you've been changing lives by this word since it was spoken first. We want a taste of that this morning. Would you overcome the the distractedness of our minds and the hardness of our hearts and give us a sense of a sensible taste of the beauty that your word holds forth to us. Would you help us to trust in Jesus more because of what we, what we see together in the next few minutes? We pray these things to you because you are, you are a God who is mighty and able to do everything that your purpose sets, sets forth for you. We ask these things of you in Jesus' name because Jesus is worthy of your favor and affection even when we are not. We pray to you through him. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn over to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We're, uh, we're going to be starting a new, a, a new chapter, if you will, in our series in Isaiah. And because of that, because of how different this series is from what we're used to, I want to set us up this morning by a little, a little bit of a recap of how we're approaching Isaiah um, because Isaiah is so long, because it's 66 chapters, th- there really wasn't any way I was man enough to go through all 66 chapters in order. And I don't know that you guys would have appreciated that if I had tried it. Uh, so in place of, of what we would normally do, which is start at verse 1 and just go all the way through, we're kind of diving into Isaiah, trying to grab hold of main themes, trying to take passages, because Isaiah is so repetitive because it doesn't work from point A to point B to point C all the way through, what we're trying to do is is go in, find good examples of things that are all over Isaiah, and try to get a good handle on them by looking at a representative text. And the way I've tried to help you conceptualize this series, the way that was introduced to me in one of the books that I read about Isaiah, is that Isaiah, rather than like a, a... an argument that a lawyer might make at a trial that just goes really in a li- really linear way, Isaiah is more like a surround sound system where you've got different messages coming at you regularly at different times from different channels depending on what the subject of that text is. I mean, if you, you know how a surround sound system works. You can be watching the same movie and, and, and at some time something's coming out of the center channel. You know, the dialogue is coming out of there, out of that speaker. And, and, and maybe some... Maybe, maybe a car that's approaching you is coming out of a speaker that's up here, and when he drives by you, it's back here. Or, or you're in, you're in a, a, a battle scene of a great war movie or something, and the sub is just shaking the floor, and bullets are flying around through all these channels. What you want to try to do is identify... Thinking of that, Isaiah is kind of like that, that, that he's shooting I, I, ideas at us and, and themes in a way that looks scattered to our Western linear way of thinking. The best way we can get a hold on this book is to try to identify what the speakers are saying. What are, the, what are those speakers and what, what kinds of messages are coming through them? We've divided it up into four. We said that Isaiah has, talked, has a lot of material on what God is like. 
In fact, some of the biggest, most articulate, most sweeping and beautiful statements of God's character are in this book. Isaiah is full of material on what has gone wrong with the human condition, especially Israel, the things they were guilty of that led them to judgment. Because the book is just full of stuff about judgment. The third channel, and the one that we start up today, is that Isaiah is full of material on what God has done and will do in response to human sin. In response to the fact, in other words, that humans have failed to match up to the image that God set for them, what has God done about it? It's one of the most beautiful and most dominant sections of Isaiah, that, that sort of material. And then finally, the fourth channel is, how are we supposed to respond to it? You know, if, if we identify with Israel, and we're guilty of the same things they've been guilty of, and God has made these promises to them that are really extended to all of us about what he's going to do to take care of our sin, then the real question becomes, how do we get a hold of that? What is the difference between somebody who does and doesn't benefit from what God has promised to do? How should we respond to God's promises to us? That's, that's the fourth speaker, if you will. And, and material comes, at that, comes out of that speaker all through Isaiah in a scattered way. What we're doing now, starting today for the next six weeks, is trying to get a good, clear look at how Isaiah presents what God is going to do to redeem the reality of sin, to redeem a world that's been broken by our disobedience. We're going to spend six weeks on it because it's one of the most dominant themes in Isaiah. It's all over the book, and because it's, it's some of the stuff that helps us to appreciate Jesus most. Isaiah's portrait of what God plans to do is one that the, that the writers about Jesus, who wrote the Gospels in the New Testament, drew from all the time because it was so articulate about him and why we need him. So we want to make sure, if if nothing else, that we come out of this series with a clear sense of Isaiah's take on what God will do to save sinners. And that starts here today. It starts with a person. Before Isaiah ever gets into the what God is going to do, it introduces us to the who is going to do it. Most of the stuff about how God is going to save sinners comes in the second half of the book, from chapter 40 on to the end. But in the first half, which is almost all about judgment... (laughs) and Israel's failure, and how God is going to judge them. Embedded in that first half comes a portrait about a king, a king who is the difference between death and life, a king through whom God will make all things right and remake the world, literally remake the world. It's that king that we're going to look at this morning from Isaiah 9. It comes up in several different places. We got a hint towards it a few weeks back when we looked at chapter 7, uh, there's another famous chapter, uh, chapter 11, that has a lot of texts that are quoted at Christmas. What we're going to do is take this middle passage, Isaiah 9, and try to get a sense of why this king holds the key to whether or not our sin has the final word on our lives. I think we've got to look at it closely because kingship just doesn't come easy to us. I mean, we know what monarchy is. Um, we know, for example, we, we observe the English system and all of its quirkiness. We know why it matters that Kate Middleton is pregnant, right? We understand some of the, some of the basics of monarchy. We even, we even understand how one might hope in a king from stories like the Lord of the Rings. If we watch the, the third movie in the Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, there's even some beauty in it in the idea of a king who comes back after a long time away to rescue his people from oppression. But what I have a hard time with, anyway, and and maybe you do too, is connecting with the fact that what I need in my life and for my future is a king who will return. I don't often personalize the portrait of Israel's coming king, in other words. And my goal for us today is, through, through looking closely at this text, is to be able to do that better. Because if you can't appreciate the promise of a king, then you can't appreciate some of the most important material in all of the Bible. That's what's in front of us today. Israel's failure from the beginning had had been tied up with failed leaders, with kings who just led them in the wrong direction. And God's response to Israel's failure is to send a better one. In fact, what we're going to see, this is spoiler alert, what we're going to see is that his response is to come as king himself into our world, our history, our flesh, to take on everything that challenges us and threatens. That's the picture we're going to try to grab onto today. If you found Isaiah chapter 9, would you stand with me now in honor of God's word while we read from it? 
I'm going to read first seven verses. This is the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. You can be seated. The way I want to come at this passage is to try to walk through it step by step because it starts really general with this picture of the new world God's going to make and then gets more and more specific, building to the spoiler, building to how God is going to remake this world and the fact that that the, the hopes for a new world are tied up with this king who's going to come, who's going to be born as a child and reign forever. I want to, I want to not get to the end before we've had a time to build the tension that this passage builds for us, starting with verse 1. It really starts with a a set of before and after images. And the overall point of these first three verses is, is pretty simple and straightforward, even if it is a little bit vague. It is that God will make a world of light and joy. God's going to make all things new. What has been broken, he will make unbroken. The chapters just before this, including the one we looked at a few weeks back, they start to unfold the bleak future that Israel is about is facing. That, that is going to come, no matter what. They, they tell us of Israel's king who chose to trust in the powerful nations that were around him instead of in the promises of God. They tell us in chapter 8, for example, that instead of trusting in the Lord and his wisdom, they were, the leaders of Israel were running after mediums and necromancers. They were, they were trying to call forth the dead for advice about what to do with the fact that these foreign nations were crowding in on their borders and trying to take them out. They went to the dead rather than to the God who had made them a nation to begin with. They had been trusting in all the wrong things, and the result was that Assyria, the bully in their time and place, was coming for them, and there was nothing they could do about it. In fact, uh, most of the ones that I read this week, commentators about this passage, said that it had probably already started by now. The fact that that at the beginning of chapter 9, a couple of regions are mentioned, Zebulun and Naphtali, suggests that they had probably already fallen to Assyria. And you could see this big, powerful nation getting closer and closer, further and further into Israel's territory. They were in darkness. They knew what was coming for them, and it wasn't going to be pretty. And there was nothing that could stop it. It was a time of anguish, we're told. Really, verse 22 of chapter 8 sets it up. Distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And then chapter 9 starts with one of the most glorious words in all the Bible, with a simple adversative, but. Gloom, anguish, distress, darkness, but. There's life and hope in that word, isn't there? It's Auburn in the Iron Bowl in 2010. Down 24-0 before the first half. 
BCS National Championship hopes hanging on the line. Down 24-0. But the greatest comeback in Iron Bowl history. 28 unanswered points behind Heisman winner Cam Newton. But (laughs) Auburn takes on the prize. That was a long time ago, unfortunately, but you get the point. Be more serious. It's your wife and kids have been in an accident. They've been hit by an 18-wheeler. But no one was hurt. It's a tornado that touches down in your neighborhood, but your house is fine. There's life and hope in that word. But, we're told, there will be no gloom. There's gloom now. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Where there was shame and contempt in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, these northern regions closest to the big bully who's moving in. Though they were in contempt because of their sin and Assyria took them over because they deserved it, there will be no shame. There will be glory and honor. He will make glorious the way of the sea. That's a Lord of the Rings kind of line right there, isn't it? He will make glorious the way of the sea, this northern region that fell first. That's where the glory is going to come first. In Galilee, up by the Sea of Galilee, that's where your Redeemer is going to come from. He will make glorious the way of the sea, the Galilee of the Gentiles, and the people who walked in darkness. Here's the main image. This is the one that comes through most. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Darkness. That's a word that packs a serious punch through Scripture. It's one of the most deep, rich, varied images that the Bible uses for what our condition is like apart from Christ. It's one that's all through Isaiah, in fact. Darkness brings forth a, it's a threatening image, like a black cloud that hangs over Israel right now as they watch their beloved promised land, the centerpiece of their hopes for God's promises to them, start dwindling away as this powerful nation gets further and further in. It's darkness. It's an image for a society in which invisibility is an asset, in which secrecy harbors evil and keeps you alive. It's an image for what goes on inside of us. It's a very personal, moral image for what goes on in us that makes us willing to harm each other. Whether that's murder or sexual assault to this run-of-the-mill angry outburst against your spouse or your children. It's the callousness that has to come over you before you're willing to say hurtful things about someone behind their back and not let it phase you. That's a darkness that's in us, that's in all of us. It's the self-centeredness that could make you wish bad things on other people's because it would make you look better. In Isaiah, it's an image for ignorance. For the ignorance that would lead you to make a God with your own hands as if that would be more trustworthy than the God who has made you a nation, who has revealed himself to you and delivered you time and time again. It's the ignorance that leads to the image we looked at last week in chapter 59 where Israel's confessing that they're like, they're like the blind who don't even have eyes, no hope for seeing anything, stumbling around, running into walls because they don't know which way is up. It's ignorance. And it's helplessness. It's an image for despair. For seeing no way out of your circumstances. For that feeling. If you've experienced depression, you know what I'm talking about. That feeling that you get when you wake up in the morning after a couple of clear clear and clean moments. That feeling that sets in when you remember your life. When you remember the circumstances that seem like they aren't going to change. That's darkness. And that's what, this, that's what this verse is talking about in all of its variety. Darkness. But. But that darkness is going away. On those who walked in darkness, a light has shined. On those who walk willfully and helplessly and ignorantly in darkness has come illumination knowledge, holiness, a freedom from needing to hide anything. With that light comes, according to verse 3, 
the joy as at the time of harvest. That's the kind of joy in an agrarian society where your whole livelihood depends on whether or not you can make ends meet during that harvest. It's the joy that, that you have after it's all in the barn, right? Because, because ever since the spring, you've been living on the edge. Too much rain or not enough rain could sink you and leave you and your family starving. It, you've been living on the edge as you watch the crops come up, and through the fall, they're standing tall, but you know that any strong storm could wipe the whole thing out, and now you've harvested it, and it's in the barn, and you're secure, and you have what you need to live. That's the kind of joy that this light brings with it when it shines. Can you imagine a world without shame, without darkness inside you and outside of you, without sorrow? Can you imagine having nothing to fear from anyone or anything? Can you imagine nothing in you to hinder you, that nothing that you need to try to suppress, nothing to mourn in yourself and in other people? It's hard to imagine, but it sounds good, right? It's a world we want to be true, a world unbroken, and that's the world promised here. What Israel should have been asking, what we should be asking, is how in the world does this world become or come from promise to reality? How's that going to happen? Verses 4 and 5 start to unfold this next step. They start to give us a series of three fours. You know, so we're, doing, we're highlighting language, but is a great word because it tells you that even though this one thing was true, now something new is true. Four is a great word to highlight because it's telling you that here's the reason. This is, this is about to explain to you why this new world is going to be possible. And the first step in unfolding that new world is a promise that God will put an end to oppression and war. That's, that's the next section for, for this morning. God will deliver this new world of light and joy by getting rid of the oppression and war that mar the old world. The first reason is, is this breaking of bondage of God's people. It's in verse 4. The yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, what you might not notice on the surface of these verses is that they're really echoing or almost quoting from old stories from Israel's past that define who they are as a people. It, it would be kind of like us framing a modern-day issue in light of something that happened in the American Revolution, right? Something that, that helped these, these events, these great dramatic events that helped give us an identity as a people in America. That's, that's what's going on here. The two things that, are, that he's alluding to are the Exodus story, where Israel, born into slavery, was delivered by God's power to, to form a brand new nation. And the story of Gideon, who after they were, after they, they were a people, this story is told in Judges 7, by the way. If you haven't read it, it's a great short story. I think you'd really enjoy it. It's got some amazing characters in it, some really fascinating twists and turns. It's worth your time. It's Judges chapter 7. This, this guy named Gideon who um, was, was raised up by the Lord to deliver Israel from this really powerful nation that had surrounded them, a nation called Midian. They were threatening them. They wanted to get rid of them. They had more, more power and troops and, and weapons. And God calls Gideon and just a, a small number of men to basically rout them and destroy the entire army. That's what's being cited here. As on the day of Midian, so God will deliver us. And the point is, the point is that this would have resonated clearly with Israel. Remember, they're watching as section by section of their beloved country goes away, never to come back in their minds. They're watching as their people get shipped off. Can you imagine what that would be like? I can't even imagine having our country threatened by a, a strong power. I really can't imagine that power being close enough almost to see and knowing that, that power wanted to take me and my family far away from everything we'd ever known. That's the imagery that this verse comes into. A promise that though now you are existing only by the will of this powerful nation who could get rid of you with a, a snap of their fingers, that will not always be true because God is going to break those bonds just like he did in Egypt. second reason that this world will be possible besides the, the end of oppression the freedom from those who are in bondage the second reason is the end of war this is verse 5 the way he pictures it is 
is of the stuff that you need to do battle being burned because you don't need it anymore. They're useless now. So the boots that a warrior would need to trample, the, the cloak, the garment, the, 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 the armor, the things you'd need to wear into battle to be secure, these things are, not, are, are irrelevant now. It's a way of saying peace is coming once and for all. It's like saying it's time to throw every spear and every sword onto the fire, every AK-47, every nuclear warhead, every unmanned drone that has ever been fashioned will be thrown onto the junk heap because it's as useless as a cassette player or a rotary dial phone. They're just outdated and pointless now. Now, here's the problem. I, I, I want to say, I, I want to camp here for just a second because I imagine I'm not the only one who struggles to internalize and to really connect with images of the end to war because I haven't been to war. I haven't tasted it. And so it's hard for me to long for it to be over. You know, it's, it's distant. It's something I read about or see on TV when I'm engaged enough, but not something that's a living reality for me. And if that's true for you, I think we owe it to ourselves to think more deeply about what war is like and to think more broadly about what these passages about the end of war involve, that they actually do have to do with us and the conflicts that are run-of-the-mill for us. This is also a promise that that routine conflict is going away. So, so think more deeply about war, for example. Uh, we, we have to. We owe it to ourselves because the Bible's images for salvation are so consistently about peace. It's all through the Bible. It's promised that peace is coming, that war is going to be put at an end once and for all. So we, we owe it to ourselves to think deeply about what war is like. We've got to think about how basic war is to human experience. I don't know if you realize this. Even in American history, where I think we all, we all tend to assume that peace is our default mode and that war is, is an aberration, that actually there has never been a generation since the founding of this country that has gone without a war. Not one generation in hundreds of years has not seen war. War is the default mode for our country and all others. What we need to do is to think about places right now around the world where war reigns, to think about what it's like to live in Syria this morning, right now, what it's like to live there, or even Libya, or what it might be like to live in Kenya this time next week after this disputed election gets resolved, what it would be like to live in Afghanistan or Iraq. We need to look carefully at what happens to cultures when war comes to them at how children end up dying, at how people's way of life gets, gets destroyed completely, their businesses, their homes, their, their communities. We need to look carefully at, the, at the, the futility and the messiness of war. I think as a child, when I was really into war movies, I mean, there, there's, an, there's a, an instinctive attractiveness to them, especially, it seems like, for, for us guys. It's something, I think it has something to do with the fact that this stuff matters. Like, there's no way that you could say that war doesn't matter. It's life and death. It's survival. It's significant. And I think it's easy to take a next step and then to, to idolize it as if it's this wonderful, glorious thing. What I've realized as I've grown and as I've read more carefully about war and looked more closely into wars in history is just how messy they are ideologically, not just physically. And how really, when you boil it down, at the level of the soldier who's actually going to fight and die, soldiers on both sides of most conflicts think that they're dying for exactly the same things. They don't understand the high-level geopolitics of it all. What they understand is that somebody over there wants to kill me and my friends, and it has something to do with my country and my homeland, and that's, that's sacred. So I'm going to fight for this. I'm going to kill or be killed. And I'm not suggesting that that's avoidable. I think that's inevitable. But that's why war is awful and pointless in the grand scheme of things. It is a necessary evil. I'm not, I'm not trying to make a case for pacifism, but it's an evil. It is always an evil. And we should long to see a world in which war is no longer a factor. And that's the world that's promised here. We need to think more deeply about it. And we need to think more broadly about what this, verses like this one imply. It doesn't just mean that there's not going to be any more you know, line up and shoot each other wars. It means no more conflict. It means peace and wholeness. It means, it means not just no more bombs 
no more murders, or even no more physical violence. It means an end to the underlying emotional and psychological conflict that give rise to all violence, to all war. It means, it means the end to the fight that you had with your spouse on the way to church this morning. It means that thing that you got defensive about. And you wish you didn't get defensive about it, but you did. And your armor got put on. It means the wounds, an end to the wounds that we absorb from other people and that we dish out to other people. That's gone in this new world that God is going to make. And that's why it's a world of light and joy and not darkness and shame. Now here's what Israel should have been asking. Here's what we should be asking. How in the world is this possible? Because ultimately Israel had seen promises like this one fulfilled before. I mean, even I already mentioned this. Even verse 4 that talks about the yoke of the oppressor being thrown off. Those are citations from Israel's history. They had they'd seen these things happen, and they had not lasted. Ultimately, right after the exodus, Israel gets saved from Egypt, put into this new land. That's one of the first things they do. Complain about their conditions, want to go back to Egypt, and they make their own God, a golden calf that they fall down and worship. First thing they do after God delivers them is fall back into the same patterns that got them in bondage in the first place. Same thing with Gideon. As soon as that story is over and they're delivered from the powers of Midian, they make a pact with a foreign god. Apostasy. So the question is, what's going to make this deliverance, this breaking of the yoke, this end to war, different from the deliverance in the Exodus or the end to war under David that ultimately just didn't last because our leaders were not faithful? That's the question. And as for the end to war, as we saw last week in chapter 59, if, if this verse is meant to tell us that the instruments of war the weapons of war are all going away. What does that mean for us? Because we, we are the primary and most lethal instruments of war. Why should we hope for a new and different result this time? Ultimately, if this new world God has promised depends on us changing, then we're in trouble. Because Israel and their history and each one of us and each of our histories knows that if our stability depends on our ability to change once and for all, then we're lost. The answer of this text and the main burden that, it, that it's meant to communicate to us is that a new day is possible because of the arrival of a new leader. It's possible because a king is coming. A king is coming to establish light and peace by his own hand. And this king would be perfect and permanent. He would be perfect and he would be permanent. God will give his people a perfect and permanent king. That's verses 6 and 7. It's the final and most important explanation of how this new world is possible. This king is going to be born into this world in real time with actual parents, a real baby, a child, a son. And this king will have the, the, the government placed on his shoulders. And now we want to drive home. The question we started with was, how can we, who don't live in a monarchy and who, who think of kings as something we read about from times gone by, how do we connect with our own need for a king, with how this text is a life-giving promise to us? And here's, here's, where, here's where it comes in. The imagery we're given here is that this king will be different because he can handle the weight of the government of Israel and of each one of Israel's lives. The government of their lives, that thing that gives them stability and peace and hope and meaning and protection, government, will rest on his shoulders and he can carry the weight. The reason we need a king is that all of us, without exception, are going to have someone on whom we've rested the weight of our own government, both broadly and individually in our own lives. It might be us. It might be our families. It might be our therapists. Somebody is carrying the weight of what needs to happen for our lives to give us stability and peace and hope. And this is a promise that this king who's coming is the only one who can carry that weight. The government will be, will stay on, will be carried by his shoulders. And here is his resume. Verse 6. 
Here are the things that are true of this king that mean he can carry a government that no one else can. I want to I briefly speak to each one because there's beauty in this portrait and it can lead you to worship Jesus if you'll pay close attention to it. This king will be a wonderful counselor. Why do you need a wonderful counselor? Because you can't see into your future. It's not just the, the nitty-gritty counseling about whether to take this action or not that one. It is, how should I build my life? What am I building towards? How can I secure the future that I want in my mind when I daydream? How can I get there without knowing all the steps that are going to come between now and then? You can't. So what you need is a wonderful, wise, all-knowing counselor who you can trust to manage your life even when you can't see what he's up to, who you can trust is carrying you rather than the other way around. That's what this king will be like. He's wonderful in his counsel. He is a mighty God. You need a king who has divine power because there are forces in this world that you can't control, forces that, can, that are the difference between joy and sorrow and death and life. And you need a God who is in charge. What you need is a king who's also divine. Because ultimately, even if you could see your future, even if you could anticipate what was coming, you wouldn't have the power you need to bring that future about. You wouldn't have the power to make sure that nothing could threaten it. But this king does. This king is the mighty God. What we need is an everlasting father because we know what it is to be abandoned, to be isolated and empty. We know what it is to be wayward. So what we need is a father who loves us who cares for us, who lovingly provides and shelters and corrects us and redirects us. In fact, this piece, the promise that this king will be like an, an everlasting father to us, is what makes his wonderful counsel and his unmatched power such good news. Because a guy who's able to see the future and control the future, who doesn't love us and want what's best for us, is a nightmare. That's a tyrant. That's a despot. That is the worst thing you can imagine. But what we're told here is that the same God who knows the future backwards and forwards, who knows what's best, who has the power to bring it about, that same God is your Father who loves you and works everything together in your life for your good. What we need is a Prince of Peace. Don't get distracted by the Prince part of this. Normally we think of that as, as royalty, and, and that makes some sense, but in, in the Hebrew... This is more about an administrative post. The prince is one who delegates, who distributes, who manages the kingdom. The prince of peace is the one who manages a world of wholeness, of beauty, of rest, of fulfillment. And he dispenses it to his people throughout his realm. That's what a prince does. That's what this king will do. He will administer peace to those who trust in him. Here's, here's the way one of my favorite writers on Isaiah puts it. This is, this is teasing out this idea that he will give us peace. On the personal level, peace means fulfillment. To die in peace, for example, is to have lived a fulfilled life, to achieve all that God's planned. Peace is well-being and freedom from anxiety. In relationships, it's goodwill and harmony, the opposite of war. Towards God, it's the full realization of his favor, peace with God as a as a prince, these are the benefits that he administers to his people. That's the king, and that's why he can deliver what no one else has been able to deliver. Now, something that should jump out at you, if you were here a, a month or two ago in our series, is that these traits mentioned here in verse 6, these are almost exactly the same things that are said about God in one of the most beautiful passages about his holiness in Isaiah chapter 40. What makes him different from all other gods, what makes him the one true God of the universe, is that he doesn't take counsel from anybody. He doesn't need to. He knows all things. It's that he is so powerful that the nations before him are like a drop in the bucket or dust on the scales. It's that he is loving like a father who won't allow his children's abandonment of him to lead him to abandon his children. He is the prince of peace, the one who gives it to his children freely. What we're, what we're seeing, in other words... What this passage is saying is that this king who's coming, who's the difference between darkness and light and sorrow and joy, this king is God himself. How in the world does God come to us? It's clear that he's supposed to be human here too. The reference in verse 7 is to the throne of David. 
somebody sitting on it, someone who actually, through physical genetic linkage to David, gets to sit on that throne. How can that person also be God? That's the question that that Israel, hearing this, would have asked, and they wouldn't have had an answer, not yet anyway. The answer wouldn't come for several hundred more years. All that we're told here is that this one is coming, that he can handle the weight of the government of God's people and of each of our lives, that nothing can threaten him because he is so powerful that his rule will last forever. That's verse 7. It's a mystery for now, but it gets clear in Jesus. This is why the gospel writers, all of them, use Isaiah when they want to tell their readers what Jesus is like, why he matters, what he came for. They go here. This passage in particular gets quoted famously in in Luke and in John. Jesus clears up what had been mysterious. It was his birth that brought light into darkness. It's his reign that will establish peace. He was the counselor who taught with wisdom that amazed even the scribes. The most learned men of his time were amazed at his wisdom. He is is the mighty God who calmed the seas with a word. He spoke to them and they stopped. He is the one who as everlasting father called the children to himself, welcomed them, held them on his lap, and said that the kingdom of heaven belongs to all who come to me with their faith. Faith just like this. He is the one who as prince of peace put an end to, Paul tells us, to the hostility that had separated us from our maker. And he put an end to it once and for all by his death on the cross. That that now, through his death, he has become the one who administrates peace for us, dispenses it to all who will trust in him. That's how Jesus clarifies what had been unclear. He offers his administration, a government resting on his shoulders. Peace, that means fulfillment and hope and blessing a government that will never be threatened and that will never end and he offers it to you if you will trust him now that's the kicker I mean ultimately we still have plenty of darkness in this world there's still plenty of anguish and plenty of gloom this is a promise that the light has dawned that the king has come that his that his government is increasing. Even now, it's increasing. But it still requires us to make a, a step of faith to claim it because there's other things in this world too. It's not obvious yet. And, and what all of us at, at one time or another, maybe some of you even now, have had to confront is this question of why or how can we know that Jesus is worth trusting when everyone else maybe has let us down. Or when there are all these other voices speaking into our heads, calling for our trust and our allegiance. That's a big question. It's not one that can be answered in the time that I've got or if I had another 10 hours to talk at you. Here's what I will say. What I will say is, I wonder if you have tried trusting him. Maybe you think you have. Maybe you think it's a trust in him that's even brought you here this morning. But I wonder if if you're still evaluating Jesus and you're not sure whether he can carry the weight. I wonder if you've only tested him so far like a consumer on a 30-day trial. Someone who takes home the TV to see what it looks like once it gets in the room. Someone who is ruthlessly analytical because they know they're going to be on the hook if they end up buying it. Someone who's always finding fault who's always emphasizing what isn't right because you're a consumer on a 30-day trial. You haven't committed to it. You haven't taken ownership of it. You haven't made it yours one way or the other. Come whatever. What it would look like for you to commit to Jesus is that kind of faith. It would look a lot more like you leaving one realm and pledging allegiance to other, like an immigrant who leaves one country, goes through the process, and takes on the new citizenship papers. It would be like the commitment of one spouse to another one, a a for better or for worse, richer or poorer kind of commitment where you are going to work out this relationship with Jesus from the inside as if he is who he claims to be. You're going to stop evaluating him or demanding that he prove himself to you. Ultimately, in other words, you can't come to Jesus without taking on another yoke. 
He promises to break the yoke that has oppressed you, that's held you in bondage, but he demands that, that you take on his. Ultimately, he tells you to take on a yoke that's easy, a burden that's light because he carries it for you. He breaks the rod and the staff that had oppressed you, but he has a rod and a staff of his own. The difference is that his rod and his staff speak comfort to you. They lead you beside still waters into the place of peace and rest and fulfillment. They guide you. They protect you. They love you because their power belongs to one who is wise and loving and brings peace. The question for you this morning is, can you submit yourself to this king This is a government we're talking about. This is not a product to consume. It is a government to pledge your allegiance to. But in this government, a government born by one whose shoulders are strong enough to carry the weight, you will not be let down. The promises are true. Please believe them. God, help us all. Help us all to believe them because all of us struggle to. Even those of us who have owned Jesus' lordship for a long time find still in us plenty of disbelief. And we want to see it rooted out. And we know that our only hope for that is is your spirit. So we ask you to help us to believe your promises this morning, to find life in them and hope in them, to find peace in them. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.